Father, we come to you today and we thank you again for this time. And Lord, we're here for, for two reasons. Number one is to glorify you, to bring glory to your name and to proclaim your word. And number two, Lord, we're here in order that you might fill us up with your word, that your word might do its work in us, the, word, the, the work that only your word can accomplish. And so we commit ourselves to those two ends today, that you would be glorified and that we would be edified by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a story recently that has, uh, that's gone viral on the internet, and you guys know I, I, I like stuff like this. It's about a man in, uh, in Lithuania who gave his Mercedes-Benz a complete overhaul in, in a way that maybe has never been done before. It's unlike anything I've ever seen before. Uh, you may not have ever seen anything before it either. I think the reason it went viral is because nobody's really ever seen anything like this before. He gave his car a complete overhaul with expanding foam. Now, if you know what expanding foam is, it's just messy, gooey stuff, and it, and it hardens and expands, and uh, basically you've got a mess on your hands. But it started out looking like he had just pulled his car uh, out of a junkyard. Sam, if you've got the, the first picture available, there it is. That's, that's the first picture. That's how this car starts out. And, and I don't know, uh, you know what the winters in Lithuania are like, but it looks like this car has been through about 10 too many uh, harsh Russian uh, weather uh, winters or something. Uh, it's an absolute disaster. And it looks like, you know, if, if you were to go to a car lot and see a picture like this, or and see a car like this, what would you do? You would pass on it. Let's just all admit it. You would pass on this car and look for something that looks a little bit better. So the owner of this car slowly started covering the exterior of the car with expanding foam. Go ahead and go to the next picture, Sam. He covers this car with expanding foam, and once it gets covered, he starts slowly and very precisely carving and, and sculpting away the layers of foam. Go ahead and go to the, the next picture. There you go. He's, he's carving away and sculpting away all this uh, excess foam. And he continued doing this until his car started to resemble the sleekest most up-to-date sports car designs on the market. And then he did the same thing to the interior of the car, because the interior of the car wasn't any better. Go ahead and go to the next picture. He, he covers it with expanding foam, and then once it's dried and w- once he's got enough of it, he gets in there and he starts, starts sculpting it down uh, into the design that he had envisioned from the beginning. And once all this was completed, once all this was finished, he put some new rims on it. He gave it a a nice cherry red sports uh, paint job. And the car had been transformed into an absolute work of art. Go ahead and go to the, the final picture. That is the same car, if you can believe that. And the amazing thing about this project, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but I look at this and I'm just like, huh, what can I start doing to my car, you know? <laughs> I guess I have to let it sit through some harsh Lithuanian winters first. But the amazing thing about this is that if you look at those first pictures, you would never, ever guess that it could ever be transformed into something so lovely, something so beautiful, something so pristine. You'd have no idea what it could possibly look like at the end. And as I read this story and, and looked at the pictures, you know, I thought it was a beautiful analogy to God's work in his people. 
you know, we start out completely broken down by sin, and there's nothing beautiful, there's nothing lovely about us that could ever cause a holy, just, and righteous God to desire us. But by his grace, and with more patience than we could ever possibly imagine, he gives his people a makeover, transforming us from his enemies into his children, transforming us from these beat-up clunkers into something truly amazing, something that you would never see and something that you would never envision from the beginning. And here's the really beautiful truth about God's work in us and on us. Not a single one of us is a finished product yet. I look at that and I'm like, whew, that's that's a relief. I'm not a finished product Right now, every one of us is like a messy clump of expanding foam on wheels. And the finished product is yet to come. And yet the Lord is like a divine sculptor, chipping, scraping, chiseling away at the mess, causing us to grow in our faith as we mature, as we're transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now, as we continue with our study of the book of 1 John today, we're going to talk about this great truth. The fact that God isn't done with us and that he's working on us. His word tells us that he is causing all things to work together for the good of those who love him, those who are called according to his purposes. And part of that involves, the, the, the end goal of that involves maturing in our faith and in our walk with Christ. It involves growing up in the family of God This is what the entire goal of the Christian life is, to become more and more mature in our faith, in our walk with Christ. So having put us, as his readers, through the ringer a little bit, which is what John's done up to this point in his book. He's got these stern warnings, and then he'll kind of, you know, balance that off with a word of encouragement and assurance. John's now going to shift gears just a little bit. In the previous passage, he reminded us of the commandment uh, that we have known from the beginning, a commandment that is both old and new. That is the command to love one another. That is, love your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ the same way that Christ has loved us. And what is that way? It's self-sacrificially giving ourselves, serving others for their benefit, for their blessing. And this is one of the great themes of the book of 1 John, loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a theme that we will come back to several times throughout this letter, and it's a theme that John is going to kind of expand on today. He's going to zero in a little bit on it for us today. But people struggle with these next three verses, uh, I think in part because the way they're broken up. Remember the, the, the numbers that the verses have, uh, that's not part of the original text. Uh, there was some monk or some group of monks at some point who said it would be good to break the Bible up into, into verses and, and into chapters, and, and it's very helpful. But sometimes their, their placement of the numbers is a little bit uh, sketchy. Uh, but whatever the case is, at this point, he's gonna feel, um, it's going to feel like he's getting a little bit more personal with, audi- with his audience, which is something that we would expect him to do at the beginning of his letter, but he's actually waited a chapter and a half to do this. 
But I think and, and, I, and I hope that when we see it in light of its context and in light of the form uh, in which it is written, it'll make perfect sense to us. Uh, so having just told us that uh, in the previous verse, he wrote, quote, uh, whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. John's going to continue by writing this in verses 12 to 14 of 1 John chapter 2. He says, I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, if you have your Bible in front of you, it, it, and you're looking at the way that this is printed out in, in your Bible, most Bibles print this out uh, differently. So it looks like you've reached a different genre, a different type of writing. And so this feels, a lot of, uh, feels very confusing for a lot of people. And I believe the translators even realize that this is kind of confusing for people, because in most Bibles, uh, it's not written out like a sentence, rather it's written out like a poem. Uh, and while I'm certainly not a, a mind reader, I don't claim to know every intention of the people who translated our Bibles. Um, I don't know why they break it up like that, but I do suspect that the reason they print it out like a poem is so that we'll see that the first half of this is parallel to the second half. And actually, I believe that one of the verses should start with the second, uh, I write to you children. Uh, you know, it, it's written there twice. Uh, and I think that that's probably where a good verse break would have been, but what do I know? You know, I'm just a pastor. I'm not a, not a translator, not a monk, uh, so what do I know? But before we continue, I guess I, I should add something of, um, of a disclaimer. Uh, this is not a letter that only applies to men. Now, he, he uses men. Uh, he uses, uh, you know, titles that you would uh, refer to, uh, that you would give to a male, but this letter was not written only to men. As we're about to see, John is actually using metaphorical language, and it was intended, his intent in, in using these terms was to involve, was to include, was to encompass the entire church. And I have no doubt that John would have been in full agreement with, uh, with what Paul taught about the way that the cross of Jesus Christ levels the, the proverbial playing field, you know, one of the beautiful uh, results of the gospel is that because of the power of the gospel, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Nobody's better than anybody in God's family. And I'm sure that John would have agreed with what Paul was teaching there. And so in the first half of our passage at hand here in 1 John, John addresses three groups of people. First, the little children, or, or dear children, depending on which translation you're reading from. They're, they're both good. They both work. Uh, secondly, John addresses the fathers. Third, John addresses the young men. And then he does it all again in the exact same order in the second half of this passage. And so John's readers would know by this point uh, that sinless perfection is not within their grasp. They're not going to be sinless. They're not going to be perfect. They're not going to be exactly like Christ. John has told them that the one who claims to have no sin is a liar. 
and the truth is not in them. And so if we're shooting for perfection, sometimes it feels like, wow, we may as well try to memorize the sequence of numbers after the decimal point in pi, uh, because that's a lot more likely to happen. And by the way, uh, there's an infinite sequence of digits after the decimal point, uh, so good luck memorizing just half of them. Uh, it's not until we stand before Christ. It's not until we, we stand before Christ in all of his glory in heaven that we will be perfected. And it's not going to be by our doing. It'll be by Christ's doing. John's going to tell us in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 2, that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. But for now, every one of us is a work in progress. And this is a theme that's repeated throughout Scripture. We're a work in progress. So sinless perfection isn't really an achievable goal. What are we doing shooting for it? The truth is, as we strive for perfection, as we strive to walk as Christ walked, as we strive to grow in his likeness, spiritual maturity is where we'll land. It's where we'll, we'll end up. Listen to what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 15. He's going to confess that he's not perfect. He says this, Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Now, every year at our uh, our annual general meeting, I start off by reading the exact same passage of Scripture. And I I don't know if you've realized that. I don't know. Maybe you haven't. Maybe you have. Maybe you you fall asleep as soon as the meeting begins. I don't know. But I always read from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. This is one of my favorite passages. This, I believe, uh, best summarizes the entire purpose of the church, or at least one of the great and primary purposes of the church, as well as one of the goals of the church. The first goal uh, of the church is to glorify Christ is to glorify God by proclaiming his word. But the second goal is that we mature, that we grow up in Christ. And so Paul writes this in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 16. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, again, he's not just talking about men, he's talking about just maturity in general, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way, into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is one of my favorite passages because this is really the second reason that we should be here today. The first, again, is to glorify God, to worship him. 
to, to declare his greatness. And John recognizes that each of us is in a process of transformation. John recognizes that every single one of us is in this process of becoming mature and becoming grown up in our walk with Jesus, just as well as any other author of Scripture realizes the same truth. Paul illustrated this, uh, this principle uh, by, by uh, using the body, the way a body works, and John illustrates this principle with the family. And that seems appropriate given that we were just reminded in the previous passage that we must love one another. We must love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. See, if there's one thing that God designed the family, just the regular family, not just the family of God, but the individual family, if there's one thing that he designed the family to have, it is a deep, deep love for one another. It's a commitment to honoring one another. And so John addresses the children first, that is, those who are babes in Christ, infants in Christ. See, every one of us physically is born as a child of wrath. And there's a common misconception in our culture that we're all children of God. But those who deny Christ, those who refuse to follow Christ, are not referred to in Scripture as children of God. Rather, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, And you were dead. You were dead. He's writing to current believers. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We didn't start out as children of God. We were born children of wrath, children of God's wrath. We were ruled by sin. It owned us. All we did was sin, and we loved it. We were slaves to it, but we loved our slave master. And this is all that fallen man can do, apart from God's redeeming work. And that's why Jesus said that unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. That's why Paul continues by writing one of the greatest uh, turnarounds in all of Scripture. He says, but God being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive together with Christ. This is God's work in us. This is where spiritual life starts, with God regenerating us, giving us life by his great mercy, by his mercy making us a new creation in Christ Jesus. It's not because of anything that we do. It's not because of anything that's lovely or likable within us. It's because he loves us. It's because of his great mercy and his great compassion for us, his great love for us. So in physical life, each one of us starts out as an infant, but the same can be said in a spiritual sense of the Christian life as well. That's why Paul says to the Corinthians, but brothers, I could not address you as spiritual people, that is, as spiritually mature people, uh, but as infants in Christ. As infants. These are people who had been Christians for a while, and he had to address them not as spiritually mature people, but as people who hadn't done any growing up in Christ. 
What was he saying to them, or what he, what he was saying to them, is that they had shown so little spiritual maturity, so little growth in their walk with the Lord, that he couldn't even speak about or, or teach about uh, the things that are more uh, advanced than the fundamental basics of the Christian faith with them. He tells them that he, he only gave them spiritual milk before and he had to do the same thing because they were still bickering. They're still squabbling amongst one another like a bunch of children. Oh, I was baptized by Paul. I was baptized by Apollos. I was baptized by Peter. And so they're bickering and squabbling and they're, they're nowhere near ready to get to the, the more advanced things, the more advanced doctrines of Christianity. And what was stunning their growth? The flesh. The flesh was. And that's the same thing that even today stunts any Christian's growth and maturity in Christ. And it's a real struggle for every single Christian to overcome the temptations, the tendencies, the desires, the inclinations of the flesh. And we all know that if I'm going to have a conversation with somebody like Bella, almost everybody in here knows Bella. She's, uh, how old is she, Dusty? Six? She's seven. She just, that's right. She just turned seven. Uh, if, if I'm going to have a conversation with her, I'm going to speak a lot differently than I will with somebody like, uh, like Craig or, or Don, who are, you know, you guys can't be older than 35, right? 35? Somewhere around there. And likewise, I'm going to talk about something like the doctrine of substitutionary atonement with a spiritual infant a lot different uh, than I will with somebody who's been a Christian for 10 or more years. So why does John start out by saying that he's writing to those who are children? There are two reasons. He tells us right here, one, one in each half of the parallel passage. The first reason is that their sins have been forgiven. And they know it. They probably know it. And isn't it true that this is the first basic, fundamental truth of the Christian faith, the first doctrine that we really embrace, that we really come to terms with when we become Christians. Looking back at when I was, uh, when when I just became a Christian, I was uh, a junior in college, and I I think I can say that that was about the only thing I knew, that I, I, I truly knew about Christianity. I knew that my sins had been forgiven. Now, I, I didn't understand how exactly. You know, there, there's the doctrine of substitutionary atonement. had no understanding of that. I didn't understand why God would save me. Uh, I, I still don't, by the way. You know, the idea of a, a perfectly good, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, perfectly just God loving a broken, degenerate sinner like me uh, doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me at all. It didn't then. It, Definitely doesn't now. It makes less sense to me now than it did then, probably. But I knew, I knew one thing. I knew that God had somehow, for some reason, forgiven me. And that doesn't make the young Christian, the infant Christian, any less Christian than somebody who can can sum up the the doctrine of substitutionary atonement in one sentence uh, any more or less of a Christian. It doesn't make somebody more or less of a Christian based on on what they know. All it means is they're at different stages, hopefully, uh, and I say hopefully because there are people who have spent their whole lives uh, going to church and yet, for whatever reason, never made a whole lot of progress in their understanding or uh, application of Christian doctrine and belief. And I will never, ever forget the conversation that I had with 
uh, a young woman who is here in our fellowship today, Dusty. Uh, she started her journey as a Christian here. Uh, and there was one service, I don't know if you remember this, a couple years ago, uh, you came up to me with, with tears welling up in your eyes and you said, I never knew how completely God had forgiven me. He has forgiven everything. I can't believe it. And I was like, wow, sometimes, sometimes I miss that. Sometimes I forget that that's, that's the first great truth that a Christian really wraps their mind around. And it's so awe-inspiring and so, so humbling. For the young believer, this is the most important thing you can know, that God has forgiven you. And it doesn't matter if you're a spiritual infant or a spiritual grandpa. This is an awe-inspiring, humbling truth to know. And this is why I love the line in, in Matt Redmond's song, Mercy, where we sing, Oh, may I never lose the wonder. Oh, the wonder of your mercy. It should never, never cease to amaze us. The second reason that John writes to the spiritually young believer is because, as he says here in verse 13, they know the Father. They know the Father. But there's something beautiful about this. Because John is making it evident that even though the young believer may only have this very, very basic understanding of Christianity, they know some of the very same things that the mature believers know. I say that because if we look at what John says to the fathers, the, the spiritually mature, it overlaps very nicely with what John says to the children. They all know the father, the spiritually mature and the spiritually immature. All know the Father. And this isn't talking about head knowledge. This isn't talking about, you know, memorizing a systematic theology volume or anything like that. It's talking about relational, experiential knowledge. Now remember that this letter was written so that believers may have true assurance of the fact that they have fellowship with God through faith in Christ. And to have fellowship with God. The word for fellowship is koinonia. It's a word that a lot of people throw around. Uh, it gets translated as fellowship. To have fellowship with God means to have things in common with Him. It means to know Him, both relationally and experientially. See, it's possible for even, even the fiercest atheist to intellectually know everything that we know intellectually about God. All of His attributes all of his promises, all of his qualities. I mean, an atheist can read St. Thomas Aquinas, uh, you know, the, the, his, uh, his dissertations on, on the attributes of God, and they can memorize that. Sure, that, great. But it's not logically or spiritually possible for an atheist, or for any unbeliever for that matter, to claim to know God experientially and relationally. Remember that to have fellowship means to have all the big and all the important things uh, of, in life in common. And this is something that unites the spiritual babe with the spiritual grandpa. They know the Father. They know the Father to different degrees, yeah, but they both know the Father relationally and experientially. And again, that's not to say that they're, the degree of their knowledge is the same. John says to the spiritually mature, uh, to the, the, the fathers, he says, you know him who is from the beginning. This is a deep, deep relational and experiential knowledge of God. This is the kind of knowledge that knows enough about God to trust him completely, even when trusting him doesn't make any sense at all. 
This is the type of knowledge that's witnessed the hand of God time and time and time again. This is the type of knowledge that knows and trusts that nothing can happen to them, that God doesn't either cause or allow. And it's the type of knowledge that allows a person to say, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because I know, God, I know that you are right beside me. I know that you're with me. This is the type of believer who doesn't fret and who knows no fear because they know that their Lord and their Savior, Jesus Christ, has been sovereign over every, every single molecule in the entire universe since its foundation. And this is the goal of the Christian life, to grow, to develop, to mature into this type of Christian to grow not only in our intellectual understanding of God, but also to grow in our relational and experiential knowledge of Him to the point where it doesn't matter what life tosses at us. We know that God is sovereign. We know that God is in control. And we know that God loves us. And He's working all things together so that we can grow up in Christ. Again, this doesn't necessarily have anything to do with age, necessarily. There are young believers, chronologically speaking, who are far more mature than some older believers. That's why Paul said to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 12, he said, Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. See, Timothy was a young man. And so the, the working assumption that some of the older people may have had is, Uh, This guy's just young. He hasn't been through the ringer like I have. He doesn't know anything. Why should we listen to him? It may have been a temptation for them them at least uh, to, to look down on him or think less of him because of his youth, because of his age. But Paul was saying, you're spiritually mature enough to set an example for people who are much older than you. So sometimes that's the way it works. Sometimes it, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with your, your physical age. You can still be very spiritually mature. So if John would have just stopped here, if he would have just addressed babes in Christ, infants in Christ, and fathers in Christ, uh, there may have been some who would have said, you know, I'm really neither. I, I really don't consider myself to be a, a spiritual infant I certainly don't consider myself to be a father in any sense, so maybe none of this letter applies to me. And so to safeguard against that possibility, John includes a third group, a group he refers to as young men. So basically, John has now addressed the spiritual infant, the spiritual father, and now he's going to address everybody in between. But before we look at what John says to the young men, we have to understand that the whole point of all of these spiritual metaphors is to make it all-inclusive. He's saying Nobody, nobody's excluded from what I'm saying here. He's basically saying that no matter what stage you might be at in your spiritual development, in your spiritual growth, in your spiritual maturation, you're still an equal part of the family. You're still part of the family, and therefore this letter is for you. So let's look at how this fits into the context. In the passage that we looked at last week, we were reminded of the commandment that we love one another in the family of God, our brothers and sisters in Christ. And now John's telling us who all is included in that. Who all is included in one another? Every believer. 
from the spiritual infant to the spiritual grandpa is included. See, it's really easy for us to get along most of the time with people who are similar to us, who are at the same stage we are in terms of uh, spiritual growth. But it can be a challenge when, let's say you've got a spiritual infant, a spiritual father, and a spiritual young man, and they walk into a bar. Now, it sounds like at the beginning of a joke. You've got these three stages, people representing these three stages all together in the same room, and that's when heads can collide. That's when arguments can ensue. That's when we have to remember that the gospel levels the playing field. And so it doesn't matter where we are on our journey towards spiritual maturity. We still must love one another. So now John addresses the young men. That is, the average Christian who maybe doesn't view themselves as a spiritual infant, uh, but may not view themselves as a spiritual father either. Understanding this much, we understand that he's really addressing all Christians, the whole church, when he says to them, I'm writing to you, young men, the first time he says, because you have overcome the evil one, And the second time he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. It is of utmost importance that Christians realize that we as Christians completely understand the fact that we are in the middle of a spiritual battle that doesn't stop. There's no timeouts. It's going on all around us at all times. And the forces of Satan, the forces of the enemy, are strong. They are resilient. And on our own, left by ourselves, they outnumber us. Their goal is to destroy you. Their goal is to minimize your resolve to live for the glory of Christ. Their goal is to minimize your interest in spiritual things and in things related to God in things related to the Bible, in things related to Christ. This is their goal because they know that they cannot touch God. And so they aspire to thwart his plans and bring his goodness into question by going after his people. Stephen Lawson puts it this way. He says, The most diabolical ploy of Satan would be for churches to be bulging at their seams but have no proclamation of Christ and him crucified. With this deadly silence, people would never learn of Christ, thus they could never know or follow him. End quote. See, Satan would love, he would love nothing more than to turn this place into a megachurch where we coddle you, where we treat you like a spiritual baby and we never encourage you to grow up, where we, we just try to encourage you, we try to motivate you to be the best version of you all without emphasizing the need for you to learn to hate your sin, turn from your sin, forsake your idols, all without emphasizing your need to love and more fully trust in Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, all without emphasizing the need for all of us to attain to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. There is a spiritual battle going on. But John says, You, Christian, you, young men, you have overcome the evil one. 
How have we done that? How have we overcome the evil one? He tells us in the second part where he says, you are strong and the word of God abides in you. That's why. You're not strong because of who you are or what you are. You are strong because the word of God abides in you. He's telling us, John's telling us here, that the strength of sin in our lives is only overcome by the power that we gain from having the word of God working within us, abiding, and dwelling within us. That's the source of our strength. And this is the central point of this whole passage. So if there's nothing that you get from this passage, please get this. Please understand that the power to find victory over the evil one is not your own. Rather, it comes from having the power of God, the power of the word of God abiding in you. If you are a child of wrath, if you have not trusted in Christ and turned away from the idol of things like self-centeredness and self-sufficiency, you do not have the power to overcome the evil one. But if you've trusted in Christ, if you've acknowledged and confessed your sin, if you have denied yourself, taken up your cross, and followed him, then you have already overcome. This is past tense. You have already overcome the evil one. You've been released from sin's power and ownership of you. Now, there are at least two very specific activities that the word of God tells us uh, Satan does, and, and his word also empowers us to overcome. The first is his accusations toward you. He's called the accuser of the brethren. He's like a prosecuting attorney that's there to, to put you to spiritual death, that, that wants to see you put to spiritual death, joining him in hell for all of eternity. And if we're being honest with ourselves, we know that that's exactly what we deserve. This is what our sin has earned us. And yet, what greater comfort is there than to know that the sovereign Lord of all creation knows us better than we know ourselves. And because he bore our sin and our shame on the cross, he looks at us and he says, your sins are paid in full, not guilty. The Holy One who knows our sins, who's more aware of our sins than we are, has redeemed us as his own anyway. Not only does Satan accuse us of the sins that we've already committed, but his second main activity is to tempt us to do it more, to sin more. And John's telling us that through the power of Christ, through his death and resurrection, through his work in bearing our sin and shame, trading our sin and shame for his own righteousness, we have already overcome the evil one. And so his arrows, as he shoots them at you, they just fall to the ground. They don't touch you. The ploys and schemes and accusations of Satan are powerless against God's people. If you belong to Jesus, if you are following Jesus, if you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, all of these things have no way of getting to you. They will not harm you. And John tells us that the power of the word of God is what gives us that victory. Paul says in, in Romans chapter 9, verse 6, it's not as though the word of God has failed. 
That's a very important verse to remember. It's not as though the word of God has failed. Though we may fall into the temptation to sin, it is not as though the word of God has failed. Even when it feels like sin just has such a stronghold on us. And it's so hard to break away from it. It's not as though the word of God has failed. The word of God does not fail because the word of God cannot fail. It doesn't fail because it cannot fail. In the words of Isaiah, for the Lord Almighty, for, for the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is nobody. Nobody can thwart his plans. Nobody can turn his hand back. In the words of Job, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Nothing in all of creation, including the evil one, can thwart the plans of God. The word of God does not fail because the word of God cannot fail. The ever victorious word of God dwells within his people. And that's why we have already overcome the evil one. And it's crucial that we understand this. Because it tells us what we need in order to protect ourselves from the spiritual forces of darkness. We need Jesus. We just need Jesus. That's it. We, we need to, to grow in our understanding of him. We need to grow in our love for him. We need to grow in our imitation of him. We just need Jesus. And we need to abide in him because apart from him, we can do nothing. So we have to guard ourselves. And we guard ourselves against the accusations and schemes and ploys of the evil one who seeks to devour us like a lion by looking to the cross and by saturating our minds with thoughts of the rescuer, redeemer, Lord and Savior, remembering that he alone is our greatest treasure. That he alone is our greatest desire, that he alone is our all in all, that he is the one who has overcome the world and that he has secured the victory for himself and his people over the evil one. The wonderful truth in all of this is that the more that the evil one seeks to destroy us, when we respond by saturating our minds with the word of God, Scripture, when we respond by setting our minds on Christ and resisting the temptation to sin, God's purposes, God's greatest desires for us will be accomplished. We'll develop a greater and greater love for Christ. We'll develop a greater and greater trust in Christ. We'll grow, we'll mature in Christ. No matter where we are on our spiritual walk, that's what will happen. We'll we'll take another step forward. Sure, there are seasons where we take two steps forward and three steps back. Sometimes that's how it feels. Sometimes it's three steps forward, two steps back. But overall, when you look at the big picture, when we learn to do this, when we learn to saturate our minds with the Word of God and saturate our minds with thoughts of Christ, we make progress. We grow up. We mature. And this may take months of practice. Probably not, just a heads up. It probably won't. It could take a lifetime of practice to, to even take a few steps forward. Either way, know this God's plans and God's purposes will not be thwarted. The Word of God 
has prevailed, and it will not be overcome by the evil one. We have overcome the evil one because the word of God dwells within us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it brings conviction, that it brings encouragement, that it brings growth. And we commit ourselves to that, Lord, to growing in our understanding, our our head knowledge of you, but not just that, also our relational and experiential knowledge of you. Teach us, Lord, to become people who are more fully committed to you, who are more committed to your glory, who are more committed to doing your work, being your hands and feet, in order that you may be glorified in our lives. Thank you for loving us enough that you would redeem us. Though we cannot understand why you would, it's a great truth that we grasp that you have forgiven us by your grace. Thank you, Lord. Teach us to be people who love you and live for you more fully. In Jesus' name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today, and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.